0: And we'll be reading Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Before we do that, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a great God, and we are thankful to be here to worship. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we turn our attention to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us this morning. I pray that you would fill Pastor Adam with your Holy Spirit, and that you would uh, enable him to preach your word in spirit and in truth. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You. you may be seated.
1: So it's a pee day for me today. I've got the, uh, what? Does that mean? So I've got the pulpit and the piano today. with Pastor Mike at the uh, youth retreat, and uh, Jake's uh, grandpa is really sick. They think he may pass away here soon. And so he was ready to be here and everything, and I encouraged him to to uh, to just be with his family. So Jake and Sherry are up in the Reading area. But anyhow, that's why it's a pee day, in case you're wondering. We are continuing our series through the book of Philippians. This is our second week, and we are in chapter 1. I'm going to be looking specifically at verse 9 through 11 today. Uh, You remember the introduction last week. We saw the precious relationship between Paul and the people there at Philippi. They had mutual concern and responsibility for each other. Uh, They took care of each other even from long distance. And so in verse 7 there, uh, Paul's talking about how much he loves them. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment In other words, what he means by there is not only are they aware of him being in prison, probably in Rome, very far away, but they actually sent Epaphrodites out there in order to be with him. So he says, we're partakers together, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, they are supporting him while he goes out in order to plant churches in other places, but they're also doing the same kind of ministry back there in Philippi. They love the Lord, they love the gospel, they're doing gospel ministry there as well. And so he considers them to be uh, partners in the gospel, he says in the previous verse. And here, partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So this is a special and unique relationship that he has with the church at Philippi. As a church leader, he's got a lot of fires to put out through a lot of the world during that time. And of course, the big one in that day was at Corinth. Huge problem for him, but the people there at Philippi had a healthy church and a good relationship with Paul. So again, mutual concern and responsibility that is grounded in the gospel. The reason that they're good friends is not because they're all 49ers fans or something like that, but it is because they are grounded in the gospel. They are partners in the gospel. They are partakers of grace. They get what Paul is doing, and they're doing it with him in uh, in more ways than one. And so they really leave, loved each other. And so this is how Paul launches into his prayer. He basically starts the whole epistle by saying, look, I really love you guys because we're really together in this whole gospel thing. And so when I pray for you, here's what I pray. So that's a super rough paraphrase of the first uh, probably eight verses of this epistle. I really love you guys. We have this great relationship around Jesus Christ We're doing ministry together. And so when I think of you, here's what I pray for you. And so here we have in verse nine, and it's just a beautiful prayer. There are phrases of this prayer that I often pray for my family members. And this is a good thing for us all to learn, I think. Verse nine, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. And in the ESV there, it says, approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here we have the Apostles' Prayer for the people at Philippi, and I'd like to take this prayer, these three verses, phrase by phrase, this morning. Uh, So beginning with this idea of abounding in love, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more. During this sermon, you probably just want to keep that first chapter of Philippians open. Keep your finger there on verse 9 as we're going through. You may want to jot little notes in the margin of your Bible or if you're taking notes in a different place. Really, really a beautiful prayer and good for us to understand in depth. Philippians already know how to love people. We know this about the Philippians from the 16th chapter of Acts, where we hear about Paul's history there. But also what we see in the first eight verses of the book, we see that Paul and the Philippians have a close relationship. So they already know how to love people. Paul isn't correcting them here. He's not saying, look, if you guys could figure this out, that'd be really nice. He's encouraging them. They do know how to love. But we have an infinite and powerful God behind what the church is doing and so he wants to see more love let's have more of that let's see more love and so what he's praying for is for that love to grow by knowledge you see that in verse 9 that your love may abound more and more in knowledge Paul prays for knowledge a lot uh, similar prayers in Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and uh, so knowledge in the Bible it needs to be clear, is connected to a way of life. It is never head knowledge. Uh, when biblical writers talk about knowledge, it's not just memorize this data. Um, it's a common spiritual sickness then and today, that a person would know a lot about the Bible but not have a righteous life that matches it. You, you may learn a lot, but not change a lot. Uh, but the knowledge of God, the knowledge that we find in the Bible, should result in more love, more joy, more zeal, and a changed life. And we see this head and action connection in another part of. Paul's writings in Colossians chapter one, he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. So he's connecting it there. He's saying, we want you to grow in knowledge, not so that you will be able to answer questions at a Bible study and stuff like this, but I want you to grow in your knowledge so that you have a righteous life so that your life reflects Uh, the kind of life that God is teaching us to have. And he goes on there in Colossians, he says, a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So that knowledge surrounds this idea of a life that is lived, that is worthy of the Lord. Knowledge helps us to love more. That's what Paul is saying here. He wants their loved increase But he wants it to increase not by saying, come on, guys, we should love each other more. But he wants love to increase as a result of knowledge. So, for example, let's just tackle the first couple chapters of the Bible where we learn about creation and we learn about Eden. And what we find out there is that mankind is made in God's image and as a result has unmatched value and therefore people should be treated with love and dignity. We also see in the first couple chapters of the Bible that God wants to be with us Like Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. Therefore, we know that our best relationships are made in God's presence and we evangelize other people to come be a part of that. We also learn from the first couple chapters of the Bible what marriage is for. That these people should be loving each other as a one flesh union with him leading and her helping to work and keep creation. Now, all of that knowledge that informs love comes from just the first two chapters of the Bible. And, of course, there is much more to learn from the following chapters, especially sections about Exodus and crucifixion. Knowledge of Bible truth, knowledge of theology helps love to abound more and more, which is why Paul prays so often in many of his epistles for people to grow in their knowledge. And he prays for them also to grow in their depth of insight or their discernment. So again, you see that there in verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment or depth of insight, depending on what translation you're looking at there. Now, discernment is different from knowledge. Discernment goes a step further than knowledge. It looks deeply into people and situations. Uh, This has to do with prudence, the old Latin word uh, and, and Greek idea uh, of prudence that we would figure out the best thing to do and say in certain situations. So discernment is about l- reading between the lines. It's about spotting lies. It's about seeing potential where things seem really rough. And this makes a powerful combo. This combination of knowledge and discernment, especially when love is the goal, that I'd be learning, and that I'd be growing in my knowledge and in my insight of how to love people better. Now, if somebody grows for your love if somebody prays for your love to grow through knowledge and discernment, it should be obvious that these things don 't just happen uh, so when, when, when the elders are praying for you in this regard, when you 're praying for for each other in this regard it doesn 't just happen like people used to think they could learn a foreign language by turning on tapes in the middle of the night and, and sleeping, and hopefully that somehow, without having to work there that i 'd be able to learn how to speak Arabic or something like that. Um, but you know, you don't learn how to uh, how to cook by watching NASCAR on television. Those things don't go together. You learn how to cook by getting into the kitchen, and in the same way, we grow in our knowledge and we grow in our insight into God through study. Study of God's word and study of people. So what Paul is praying for here is that the Philippians will be intentional about studying God and studying others, and that God would bless that study. Uh, and that The increase of love would be the fruit of that. And so we all, I think, need to spend time studying the Bible, studying theology, taking the time to study people, getting creative about expressing love to each other, looking for situations to express love. Now, what exactly is this love that is supposed to grow as a result of being informed through knowledge and insight? What is this love? And I know that seems like a silly question. What is love? But the word love is used in so many ways. If I say, I love guinea pigs, then what I'm saying there is that I think they're cute and I like looking at pictures of guinea pigs and I like watching YouTube videos of guinea pigs and so on. I'm not actually saying that. I'm giving an illustration here. <laughs> I might say, I love sushi. And by, what I mean by that, I love sushi. What I mean by that is that it tastes good and I eat it because I enjoy it, not because it's some kind of duty Um, Now, the Bible doesn't mind using the word love in that way, but the Bible adds much more. You know, people get divorced sometimes in our culture because one of them thinks or both of them thinks, you know, we don't love each other anymore. But that puts marriage to a human being in the same category as guinea pigs and sushi, uh, things that we have a taste for or things that we have a preference for. And when we speak about love in that way, then we see the need for a much more Mature definition of love and that's what the Bible gives us is more to say about what we're talking about in love. The Bible shows us many kinds of love and I'd like to show you just a few here. I'd like to mention just a few kinds of love that the Bible talks about and we start with Jesus Christ of course because he's the ultimate example of loving in the Bible his death on the cross to take away our sins was the greatest expression of love in human history. John 15 13 says greater love has no one than this that a man Lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus teaches us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection that real love makes sacrifices, even very painful sacrifices, for undeserving people. Something that we learn. As a result of growing in the knowledge of the Bible, we grow in our knowledge of what Jesus Christ is like and what he did and why he did it. And the result of that is that we are learning how to make sacrifices, even potentially very painful sacrifices for undeserving people. And we want to see this kind of love abound more and more. People looking for opportunities to bless people, especially when it has not been earned. And we're tempted to live by a kind of scale mentality. I've changed five diapers today. You've only changed one. Therefore, I get to feel sorry for myself now. Uh, I am entitled to sulking because the scales are imbalanced. But the knowledge of Christ laying down his life turns that kind of thinking on its head. Instead of a scale to prove uh, that you are undeserving and therefore I'm withholding my love. Instead, that unbalanced scale actually increases the motivation to express love. It increases the glory that God gets when love is expressed so that we have a very different kind of competition that happens biblically. Romans twelve ten: outdo one another in showing honor. That's what biblical competition looks like. That's what the scales ought to be in the church. Another different kind of love that we see in the Bible, very different from the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We see a different kind of love described in the Song of Songs. Um, this love is very intense and affectionate. Song of Songs verse uh, two of chapter one: Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. In chapter two, she says, "He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love." And then she says, "Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love." His left hand is under my hand, and his his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. What we have in the Song of Songs is an entire book in the Bible about sex. And that seemed very unreligious to people in the past. And so they allegorized the whole thing. And so that line, "As banner over me is love, is a good old church song that probably many of you remember. Um, his banner over me, his love. Yeah, I remember that from 20 or 30 years ago. And of course, Christ does love the church as a bride, but the reason that the metaphor works is because the unallegorized reality is so beautiful. This lady is weak in the knees. I'm sick with love, she says. And we want to see this kind of love increase more and more. There are many disappointments and brokenness that piles up uh, in marriage, and he the Song of Songs. You don't ever read it for your daily devotions and that type of a thing. Uh, so that uh, the only kind of hand shaking, crazy, like drunk type sex that ever happens is before marriage. Uh, but some Christians choose to have lots of hard conversations through many years. So that they're still doing it like Solomon in their 70s and in their 80s. Let's see that kind of love abound more and more. Well, the Bible shows us another kind of love, and we see that here in the book of Philippians. Paul had this sweet relationship with the church at Philippi. Even after Paul left the city, they're keeping in touch with each other with mutual concern and responsibility. These are Christian people who are enjoying each other and taking care of each other no matter what. And we want to see that kind of love increase more and more people opening their lives even to strangers and partnering together in ministry. Two of my favorite examples of this kind of love uh, come from literature. Uh, Mr. Beaver's house is one of my favorite uh, sections in all of the uh, the Narnia Chronicles. Mr. Beaver's house, the children finally show up there, and uh, they learn about Aslan. Uh, the, the Mr. Beaver says he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. And he's asked a question, and he says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, that's a classic line, classic line, right? And it happens over a great meal. Remember that meal? And I think that's actually important. So let me, uh, let me read this section here of what this, this environment was like. So they're having a theological conversation, and it's allegorized, I know, but they're having a theological conversation. They're talking about God, talking about Aslan. And here's the context. There was a jug of creamy milk for the children, Mr. Beaver stuck to beer, and a great big lump of deep yellow butter in the middle of the table from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes, and all the children thought, and I agree with them, that there's nothing to beat good fresh-water fish if you can eat it when it has been alive half an hour ago and has come out of the pan half a minute ago. And when they had finished the fish, Mrs. Beaver brought unexpectedly out of the oven a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll, steaming hot and at the same time moved the kettle onto the fire so that when they had finished the marmalade roll, the tea was made and ready to be poured out. And when each person had got his his or her cup of tea, each person shoved back his or her stool so as to be able to lean against the wall and gave a long sigh of contentment. And now, said Mr. Beaver, pushing away his empty beer mug and pulling his cup of tea toward him, if you'll just wait till I've got my pipe lit up and going nicely, why now we can get down to business. And he goes on then to talk theology. Now, that's a great context for talking about theology. That is what I would like my home to feel like when people come there. That is what I would like my home and family to feel like as my children grow up there is a little bit like Mr. Beaver's house. Another example of good Christian fellowship comes from Jane Eyre. Uh, Toward the beginning of the book, there was something about that scene that really moved me. Uh, Jane, at this point, is still very young and has not uh, experienced very much except abandonment and survival. And all of a sudden, she was invited to tea one evening with one of her teachers, Miss Temple, and also her friend, Helen, who was a believer. And this is the first time that Jane had ever experienced dignity and grace Uh, And it comes during this simple meal where she listens to a discussion of Latin poetry. Uh, It's Jane's first experience of truth, goodness, and beauty. And I think Charlotte Bronte shows us there the warmth of Christian love toward people who really, really need it. So there are many kinds of Christian love, all different kinds of Christian love that we see in Bible and throughout literature and throughout the church. Sacrificial and gracious, sexual and persevering, mutual concern and responsibility, sweet moments of hospitality during even dangerous times. And we want to see that kind of love increase more and more. And the way that that increases is by growing in knowledge and insight through the Bible and through wise people. It may be actually very easy, much easier, to have a small circle of friends and to, small, and, to, uh, and to sort of fall into uninspiring relational ruts and never engage with mission or important ideas. But that sort of small love does not reflect the huge and infinite and epic heart of God who gathers us into this grand story and invites us to engage with it. So all of this about love, defining love in such a beautiful way, and then notice there in verse 10, he says, so that, and that's important because verse 9 and 10 are connected to each other grammatically, so that you may be able to discern what is best, or so that you may be able to approve what is excellent. Now, the goal of this verse is just pick it apart here i I don't want to put a diagram on the screen or anything and bore you with the grammar but i think it's an important thing to see that the goal of this verse is to discern what is best the goal of the verse is to approve of what is excellent to be able to say now that's good and that isn't as good or that's evil or whatever to be able to discern what is best that's the goal how do we figure out what's best how do i know in the millions of decisions that i'm going to have in my life how am i going to know what to do how do i pick what's best And we find out from the so that the so that connects it with the previous verse about love. We abound in love so that we can figure out what's best. Spurgeon has an interesting way of talking about this. He says, let us be on the watch for opportunities of usefulness. Let us go about the world with our ears and our eyes open, ready to avail ourselves of every occasion for doing good. Let us not be content till we are useful, but make this the main design and ambition of our lives. Love needs to be at the very top of what it is that we're trying to do in this life. It's our main goal, and if that's our main goal, we'll be able to figure out what to do. That's the good life. The good life, if our love is growing as a result of knowledge and insight... Then we'll know what to do. We'll know what to say. We'll know what invitations to accept. We'll know how to handle a difficult spouse. We'll know what to do with my retirement. We'll know what vocation to pick or how to talk to this person in the lobby after church or who to spend time with. So in other words, get knowledge and insight into love so that it increases and multiplies in you and then you're going to be able to figure out what to do with all the different big and little decisions that you have. And the opposite of this is a missionless, unintentional, whimsical way of living that does not have a deep impact on the world with the love of Christ. But there's more here in verse 10. He says, figure out love so that you may be able to discern what is best. And then he goes on here in verse 10, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. May be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So, there's something about an intentional life of love that makes us ready for the second coming. It actually makes us pure and blameless uh, so that when Jesus Christ comes back, we are ready for him. Um, Now, that raises some theological questions because usually when we talk about becoming pure and blameless, we're dealing with atonement, we're talking about justification. And the way that that happens is uh, by faith, because of grace. Uh, It's penal substitutionary atonement the way that I get clean is by confessing my sins and all the punishment for those sins Then are given to christ on the cross two thousand years ago His death paid that penalty and makes me clean. So how is it here? We're being told to love each other and that also makes you clean So I think this is an important question for us to think through and resolve I'd like to start doing that by looking at matthew 25 the parable of the 10 virgins I'll just read this to you. First 13 verses of Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. For you know neither the day nor the hour. And there are other parables along that same line. And it's disturbing. I think it's intentionally disturbing that Christ is communicating to us, look, I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a house, place for us all to be together. And I'm going to come back. So be ready when I come back. Uh, And we see many, many parables that tell us what will happen to those who are not ready. So what does that mean to be ready? Clearly, it is not just believing the right things because these virgins believed in the bridegroom and were excited about the bridegroom. Believing is not enough. There has to be some kind of connection to behavior in order to be ready. Uh, love has a purifying effect in this respect. Uh, if love is in a church, then divisions aren't. If love is shaping my choices, then selfishness and worldliness are not. And so this verse is not about, this verse here in Philippians is not about justification, but it is about creating a safe and solid place in the church. Um, for example, last week I compared Philippi to Corinth. Corinth was not a safe, solid place. When you came to church at Corinth, if you were a believer in Corinth and you went to church, then you would be. Uh, Faced with a bunch of things. So let's say before the service starts, everybody's kind of milling around. People are talking. And a lot of that talk is slander. Some of them are saying, well, I'm a big fan of Paul. And other people are saying, well, I don't really like Paul, actually. I'm a big fan of Apollos. Uh, you would also be able to see there in the lobby or as people are trying to get together, uh, you would see unrepentant sexual sin. There was a man there in the church who had not been confronted by the church. He was sleeping with his father's wife. Um, uh, probably a second wife there, not his mother, uh, but sleeping with his father's wife. It was a it was a terrible expression of adultery, and none of the elders knew what to do about it. So they just allowed this guy to keep coming and brazenly sinning and coming to the coming to church. You also had a situation where the poor people had to be in one section and the rich people were in the other. And I'm sure it wasn't something that they thought through, like, let's make sure that all the poor people don't feel welcome. But because they were clueless in the way that they were expressing love to each other, there was a separation that occurred. And so when you come to that church, you're going to experience prejudice. You also have all kinds of theological confusion. Much of Paul's letters, and he refers to letters... Uh, in 2 Corinthians, he refers to letters that we don't have a record of. So we know that he actually sent at least four letters uh, to the Corinthians and we only have uh, two of those letters. But he's constantly trying to explain, no, 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 that's that's actually not it. Here's what it is. And he's going back and forth trying to answer some very fundamental questions, not those interesting questions that sometimes we sit around and we talk about over the dinner table. I wonder about this or I wonder about that. But these are fundamental things that these people are not getting. So if you come to a church like that, uh, and some of you may have grown up in churches like that, You're going to face slander, unrepentant sexual sin, prejudice, and theological confusion. It's actually hard to make an argument for going to a church like that. Unfortunately, it was the only game in town. It was the only church there was, which is why Paul made such a Herculean effort to engage them so that they could become healthy. In that kind of an environment, you can't trust the elders to shepherd the people so that this place would be safe and the teaching would be solid. So you may feel cynical about organized religion, about going to church, There is an impurity to churches like that. And this is different from the doctrine of justification. I'm not saying that everybody at Corinth was going to hell. It may be that they understood the gospel to some kind of an extent, that they were still uh, able to go to heaven. But they're putting a lot of burdens and barriers in their evangelistic efforts. and A lot of people sitting there thinking they're right with God when, in fact, they are not. The whole place is filled with spiritual potholes because people in the church are not pursuing the knowledge and insight that leads to increasing love and good decisions in life. And so when Paul is praying for them in verse 9, he says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He calls it fruit of righteousness. He's specifically talking about love here, expressions of love. Of course, there are other things that need to happen in a church. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the big one. We got to focus on love. And so when he's talking about the fruit of righteousness, he's specifically talking about what he said two verses earlier there about love abounding and increasing and multiplying more and more among them. He wants to see that kind of fruit. But he also says this comes through Christ this comes through christ you see that in the middle of verse 11 this is not something that we just decide we got to work harder to be nicer to each other we got to really try like can you please get into a small group would you please invite somebody over to your house that you don't really like very much and you don't really want to have over anyway that's legalism Where we all try and act like we're more mature and more spiritual than we actually are. Happier than we actually are. More joyful than we actually are. More peaceful than we actually are. So we fake it when we're together. But then when the lights go off in the middle of the night, we're sitting there staring like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to feel. And so what he says here is this. This kind of fruit comes through Christ It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a matter of going to God saying, look, I'm a mess, and I pray that you would use me to express love to as many people as possible until I end up dead, like the goal of my life until I'm dead. Lord, I pray that you would multiply and increase my ability to express love to people in my life. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes through humility And comes through an openness and a willingness to be used by God to do whatever he wants to do. Comes through Christ. And then he says there, the very last phrase of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. And that's also important. A lot of times in religious situations, you have people walking around acting spiritual to the glory and praise of themselves. (laughs) Right? Or if a kid is uh, admirable in some respect and, and makes something of his life. And it is to the glory and praise of the parent. And of course the opposite is also true uh, to the, to the shame and embarrassment to the parent. If something goes wrong, Why not have a graceful environment, a grace-filled environment where the focus is put on biblical knowledge and insight so that we continue to express love to each other with as much humility as possible, realizing that if anything substantive or important is going to happen, then it's going to be because Jesus Christ intervenes in my heart because I'm such a mess that's not going to happen unless he intervenes. And let's see if we just do that toward each other for a long period of time Maybe I can write a book about it and be a real famous pastor and preach the circuit. No, 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 no. To the glory and praise of God. We're not trying to... The guy who mentored me, Mr. Moore, uh, I was dating a girl that I shouldn't have been at the time and he brought me into his office and fixed that really quickly. (laughs) Um, he, He just asked me one question and he was angry when he asked it. He said, you're not seriously dating her, are you? And I no, and I went out and broke up with her, because uh, I was dating her, I had met her family and everything, but I was at a stage where at least I knew that I was messed up enough that if he said this, then I would do that, and uh, and that was a good thing for me to do when I was 19 and dumb, uh, now I've got a, a brain on me, and I'm not just going to do whatever somebody tells me to do, but at that stage, it was what I needed, Um. But anyway, Mr. Moore gave me Jim Elliott's biography, "In The Shadow of the Almighty, which we have copies of in the library and the bookstore. And uh, that book, The Shadow of the Almighty, he told me afterward that somebody gave it to him when he was dating somebody that he shouldn't have been when he was in, uh, when he was in college. And uh, so he gave me that book, and he told me to read it, and it just completely turned my life around. Now, it was written by Jim Elliott's wife, who wrote his biography after he was killed on the mission field. And uh, I didn't just give away the end of the book. That's actually the first chapter. But uh, you're like, oh, man. (laughs) My grandma used to do that with movies, you know. I went and saw a movie with her once, and she said, he's so nice, but he dies at the end. (laughs) So I'm not giving that away. It actually is the very first chapter. And then you rewind, and you find out about his life. But most of the book is a collection of his journal entries. And uh, I wanted to be like Jim Elliot. I wanted to... I wanted to be like him, you know, and so uh, so I started keeping a journal. But it, the interesting thing, though, is that I'm writing it thinking future generations will see this. <laughs> so I need to be careful about what I'm writing here. I love the Lord so much today. I've grown in my understanding of Him. So <laughs> we're not in this for we are not in this for the ego boost. Uh, And all of the elders said, amen. All right. You don't get into church leadership because it's an ego boost. Uh, I have a good friend uh, named Barry Azarkon. He's at a different church service here in town this morning over at Auburn Grace. Any of you guys know Barry? He's just a quality guy. He's a good guy. And we were having dinner at their house recently, and he said that uh, he has felt God communicating to him lately to embrace obscurity. And that has become my, uh, my new motto. In fact, I actually made a T-shirt that said, Embrace Obscurity. And uh, I just got it in the mail, and I pulled it out. It's this black shirt, and it says, Embrace Obscurity. And Libby's like, isn't that kind of the opposite of what you're trying to say there? Like, so now I don't know what to do. I spent 100 bucks on these four shirts that I was excited to give out. And it's kind of like, it's actually saying the opposite of what, what I was trying to say. So I'll wear it to, to bed at night by myself, but never uh, never in public. <laughs> <laughs> good thing I have Libby, that's right. That's right. Our church would be a, a big mess if if I didn't have a good wife. All right, so Paul is saying, look, I want you to do all this stuff, and it's going to be awesome, and you're going to create this beautiful church and all of that, but it's a fruit of righteousness. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes through Jesus Christ. And the reason you're doing all of that is not so that you're hoping I'll brag about you when I go to Corinth, but it is so that God is glorified, so that God is praised more. Uh, Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. So, let's close with a quotation of Shakespeare. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Listen to this. This is from Sonnet 116. It's a great, uh, great love sonnet. And uh, obviously this would normally be applied man and woman and so on, but I'm applying it to the church. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you have been so good to us in sending Jesus Christ to show us how to live a loving, righteous life and how to take care of undeserving people, how to be a blessing. And God, I pray that you would help us to follow your example in this place but not just here in Auburn, that the ministry of this place would impact lives to the uttermost parts of the world. We pray that you would be glorified and keep us faithful until you return. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.